Good morning. Welcome to Rising. We have an incredible show for you to kick off the week. Robbie, what do we have? Well, our Rising panel will be here to weigh in on a possible national abortion ban. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has floated. And then Emily Jashinsky will discuss why the GOP is slamming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer over his stance on SCOTUS. And last but not least, we'll get into viral discovery with a staff writer for Vox. But first, the Russian ambassador to the U.S. warned that a threat of nuclear war is very real as tensions mount over ongoing fighting in Ukraine. Moscow's ambassador to Washington, Anatoly Antonov, told Newsweek, quote, the current generation of NATO politicians clearly does not take the nuclear threat seriously. Following this warning, however, Russian state media reported that Moscow had no intention of using nuclear arms in Ukraine, which Moscow calls a special military operation, effectively shutting down the idea of using nuclear weapons, although it made everybody freak out over the yeah. weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Just last month, top U.S. military leaders accused Russians of nuclear saber rattling after the Russian foreign minister said the nuclear danger is serious, real, and we must not underestimate it. And according to the CIA, Director William Burns, while Putin has been doubling down on the war in Ukraine, there have been no signs of Russia planning to use nuclear weapons. Burns spoke to the Financial Times, saying that while the intelligence community does not see evidence of Russia planning to use nukes, it's still something they don't take lightly. Just yesterday, Russia's space agency said Moscow would be capable of eliminating NATO countries in just 30 minutes in a nuclear war but added that we will not allow it because the consequences of the exchange of nuclear strikes will affect the state of our Earth. And this is just, you know, horrible stuff to even be contemplating. And it's why, you know, any kind of, um, you know, even a limited kind of war or military situation is, is more potentially catastrophic than that. Because even if it's a small, very small chance, and it is a small chance, I think, of escalating to nuclear conflict, like, you know, like a, what, a, a 0.1% chance of destroying all life on the planet? <laughs> like, you, t- you don't want to get, you don't want to take, you don't even want to go down that road. So it's just yeah. like really scary stuff. Well, it's just interesting. You know, there's just been a lot of talk about nuclear war with Russia. And of course, we do have to worry about it. They do have a lot of nukes. They have more nukes than we do by about a thousand. I think they have something like 6,500 nuclear warheads and we have about 5,500 or something along those lines. So um, it is a very real threat, you know, of the two big nuclear powers going at it with each other. But Russia doesn't really have any motivation right now to use nuclear weapons. There's no reason for them to do it. So even though there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of even our politicians are loosely throwing around the idea that there might be a nuclear war with Russia, um, even the Russian ambassador to the U.S. kind of saying, oh, well, you've got to take this more seriously. The the reality is, is you have to have a reason to want to use a nuke. And Russia just doesn't have a reason to want to use one. They're, they're, you know, despite what Western media has been trying reporting about Ukraine, saying that the goal of Russia was to take over Ukraine. Russia's never stated that as their goal. It's been to hit military targets, take those military targets out, and then definitely take parts of Ukraine, which they are actually right now successfully doing. You know, I mean, it's going to take a while. We're supplying Ukraine with a lot of weapons. So there's a lot of destruction and death going on in the meantime. But they are slowly, uh, albeit, accomplishing their goals. So there's no reason for them. Also, their economy is not being crushed. We are trying a lot by putting a lot of sanctions on them. 
it's not, you know, I'm talking to people that my contacts in Russia, they're saying that they're not feeling the effects as an average everyday person at this point, that the government has been stepping in, helping them out. One of my uh, contacts over there says that they're actually getting a 20% raise. They work for a Russian bank and or or the cell phone company. I'm sorry, I, I forget which one, but they, um, they're getting a raise in order to help with the inflation. They said that the government has stepped in and done a lot for them. So there, there's really no, you know, there's no uprising going on in, in Russia right now by the population. Right. The So there's no pressure to use a nuke. Like, what they would are, be the point? I, I agree that there, yeah, there isn't. I don't think there's any serious reason to think, if, if with the, conf, uh, the, the confrontation at its current level, there's no real reason to right. think that they would. If we became more involved, it could be a different story. I think probably sure. what the... Yeah, I, I agree with you. They're not really suffering, you know, the economic um, hardship. The they are they are losing troops, right? They're losing soldiers, and e- even yeah. even losing a. I mean, think of how you know the, the the trickle of of lives lost in Afghanistan, for instance, among U.S. troops, right? When we were there, you know, the the daily the body count, even small small losses daily basis, it, it, it can sap morale, right? It can it can. So I think that's probably the most palpable way in which they're feeling the effects. But those are, you know, kind of morale sort of thing, not an actual, not an economic hardship. Right. Yeah. Well, and they're also just at a different place in their development as a country than we are. I mean, we don't have the appetite for that as much, uh, just where we're at economically, where we're at as a country. Russians, you know, they're coming from a bit of a different space, a harder place, mm-hmm. right? They've, they've experienced much more hardship in their recent young lives. I mean, people in their 30s right now remember what it's like to stand in bread lines, uh, you, you know, or you know, they, they remember what it was like with the collapse of the USSR mm-hmm. and then trying to rebuild and it being very stressful on the population. So they're coming from a bit of a different space. I think they have a little bit more tolerance for dying for your country, for the benefit of your country, for the building up of your country than like we do. Because for us, it's, you know, we look at our wars, our endless wars, and we're like, I, you know, what are we doing? Are we building America? Is this helping us somehow? How is it helping it? Right. How is this helping us? Russia might look at this a bit differently, right. their population. So, um, but right. yeah, I, I don't which think is a, Which is actually, which is a good thing right. about the U.S., that the, the ability of the U.S. government to engage in, uh, to invade other countries is now limited, finally, right. by the U.S. people's total wow. lack of interest in doing that and an absolute desire to focus on problems at home and not in get involved in nation building and you know not try to solve the problems of the rest of the of the globe with uh, at the point of a gun but if set- only our politicians would actually listen to us though yeah. right? <laughs> right they're not following right. what the people right. want but they are but they're more you know they're more constrained than much more constrained than, than George W Bush was in the you know at the first half of the of the aughts um, that kind of thing today would not I don't think it would I mean it would, it would if we were if we were attacked if we you know if we were invaded there would be patriotic you know fervor to do something about it probably but uh, but the, the American people in their in their <laughs> occasional wisdom at least uh, you know don't want don't want that kind of uh, policy anymore uh, but somebody who does want that policy for certain is Senator Lindsey Graham taking a more direct approach with his words saying the goal of the war in Ukraine should be to take out Putin adding there is no off-ramp with the Russian president remaining in power. When the invasion initially began back in February, Graham had floated assassinating Putin while on Fox News. And this is that when I talk about like the unseriousness of the Republican Party, I'm talking about this. If you're going to 
like pursue like that's not a policy you discuss on television. <laughs> like if, if, if assassinating yeah. Putin is what they're going to like, you would they would just do that and then deny all responsibility, not talk about how we should do it on freaking television. So obviously that you know obviously that's not something they're they're doing or planning or or or, or should in out in the open. And we're not going to. We're not. We are not going to accomplish regime change in Russia. I think there's a possibility if this goes on long enough that you know, his own people might replace him with someone else. But that's not going to be. That's not something that we are going to accomplish today, tomorrow, next month, or next year. <laughs> Well, I don't think uh, assassinating Putin is actually part of the plan. I think Lindsey Graham is just, you know, trying to sound like a strong man. But I do think he's right that the goal of the war is to take out Putin in a way, like, you know, take out the regime to change the government of Russia. I think every action the U.S. has made at this point has been not to save Ukraine, not to help the Ukrainian people, but to actually harm Russia, to go after Russia, sanctioning Russia, uh, you're trying to basically turn the people against Putin so that he is somehow ousted from office, trying to um, bleed out Ukraine, literally, so that the people in Russia losing soldiers say, hey, we don't want this special operation, quote unquote, that the, the government is calling. The people in Russia call it a war, but the government calls it a special operation. Uh, so I do think that the goal, I think he's saying the, the quiet part out loud, saying that the goal of this is not to save Ukraine and to help Ukraine re regain their, uh, retain their sovereignty or their freedom, but the real goal is to actually harm Russia, to take out Putin, the Putin government. And I think the American people should be livid about this and feel lied to. This is why we're sending over billions of dollars worth of of equipment and aid and we're you know we're here suffering in the united states with a collapsing economy that people not being able to afford their groceries or pay their electric bills and or gas gas prices through the roof and yet right. we're supplying endless weapons to ukraine for what end for a, an end that doesn't exist it's not going to happen the russian people love putin whether we like it or not they do he's overwhelming he's way more popular over the over there than any of our politicians are here in the united states with us americans so it's not going to happen it's a pipe dream, but yet we're funding right. it, and we're going to continue this on endlessly right. because well, of this I mean, agenda. He's probably, authoritarian governments can maintain a veneer of popularity, right? Because the, there are there is criticism is a much greater amounts of criticism are allowed in this country of our government. So there's no, there's nothing. You know, we're very uh, we're battling and fighting and arguing and debating policy all the time. Robustly, you know, it's okay to call the president a moron and a liar and all those things. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot more acrimony in our political debates because we have we have a freer society than China or Russia, et cetera. So it's not. Well, I, I mean, I, 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 they can criticize in Russia and in China. They're totally free to do that. There are just limits. They're for sure not as free as we are here. For sure, they do not have as many freedoms when it comes to being able to criticize the government to a certain level, but they absolutely can do it. Uh, you know, in China, really, the limit is you can't do personal attacks. They don't like personal attacks on the politicians. They say you can criticize the policies. You can't just go after the person. I mean, they you have, can't search you know, online right, for criticism of the government. Well, in China, right. But everybody uses a VPN over there. So it's, you know, it's like a fake facade of this great firewall of China. Uh, I, I mean, look, people, they're definitely not as free, but they're definitely not living in some controlled society that what we think of when we look at like North Korea, for example, it's much more free than that. 
And they're freely traveling around. I mean, right now, Russians are not freely traveling around the world, but that's because of the West stopping them from doing it. But Russians and Chinese can go everywhere, and they, especially Chinese right now, and they do go everywhere. And they're free when they go anywhere they go to criticize and say whatever they want, or they move, they move to different countries, they immigrate. You know, it's not that lockdown of an authoritarian country. It is more than ours, but not like over so crazy overwhelming. I mean, they I have, just can't I have a things. very low tolerance for any kind. I mean, I, I don't, I, I wish we were much more. I'm not, we are freer well, sure, than that. Yeah. We're not nearly as free enough. Uh, but they, right, they and that's look. totally true. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Well, uh, but we did have more people show up to Ukraine. We just want to mention this, that the first lady showed up. She did a, a surprise right. visit. So we have more U.S. politicians showing up. Uh, you know, we had Nancy Pelosi show up. We also had Antony uh, Blinken and also uh, Lloyd Austin show up. But now this, the first lady, she made a visit, a surprise visit for Mother's Day to Ukraine to visit with the Ukrainian first lady. This is uh, Zelensky's wife. And also Justin Trudeau showed up as well. He went to Irpin. He wanted to see the devastation for himself there. So he also made a trip, although I feel like his trip was overshadowed by the first lady's trip. So I don't know if he got the press that he was looking for by showing up to Urban. Um, but I mean, now there's so many went, people who've gone. Went. I don't think anybody gets the, right? It's just, a, it's, it's the endless visit to Ukraine yeah. situation. It's now it's a, but we haven't, well, but, you know, but look, Biden, Joe Biden hasn't gone. No, and I think he should. I think, I, I think it's good that our politicians and our military leaders are going over there. They need to see what they're doing with our money. I mean, mm -hmm. look, if they're going to be spending our money to this level, I guess they should go and see what their money is buying for them. So, you know, by all means, show up, take a look around. I hope then they make maybe change their mind and decide maybe they should be facilitating peace negotiations in Ukraine and helping the American people at home here, you know, on our own soil. But, uh, well, anyway, we've got your radar coming up next, Robbie. Looking forward to it. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, Elon Musk has a plan to improve Twitter, and details of it were obtained by the media over the weekend. So according to the Daily Mail, Musk told investors that he intends to fire as many as 1,000 Twitter employees, presumably employees who hold progressive woke views on speech that class with his vision for the platform. Then he would actually hire 3,600 new employees to help build out the site in a way that aligns with his vision. Musk also plans to quadruple the company's revenue from $5 billion to $26 billion by 2028. He wants to move away from Twitter's reliance on advertising to make money and instead adopt a subscription-based model in which some users are paying a few bucks a month more for features uh, or experiences that better serve the kinds of engagement they are trying to build. So Musk is also toying with eliminating the company's San Francisco headquarters and not paying any salaries to board members, which would be a great idea. And so I think a lot of these are, are bold and, and exciting, and I'm excited to hear what Twitter will be like under new leadership. But it's a little unclear exactly how much he's going to be able to implement all this stuff. 
Now, one thing, however, that is certain is that Musk will face near total opposition from the mainstream media, which continues to paint Musk as some avatar of misinformation, his support for unrestricted free speech, a dangerous aberration to the online norms. Indeed, a recent profile of young Elon Musk in the New York Times adopted the explicit framing that Musk's upbringing in apartheid South Africa was one where an environment of free speech allowed for racist disinformation to shape his childhood. On Twitter, the author of that article summarized it as saying that Elon Musk, quote, grew up in a South Africa that saw the dangers of unchecked speech. Apartheid government propaganda fueled violence against black people. But wait a minute. Government propaganda isn't unrestricted free speech. Government propaganda is the very definition of, of restricted speech. In fact, in the article, the reporter explains that under apartheid, the government would heavily censor the newspapers that arrived at people's doorsteps. That's not free speech at all. That is censorship. The misinformation that existed in South Africa about black people was not the result of some climate of unfettered First Amendment-style free speech. The vicious lies were forced on the people by their government, and the truth was made illegal. Now, the New York Times has the framing entirely backwards. The oppressive racism of apartheid South Africa isn't a cautionary tale about the dangers of Elon Musk-style free speech. Rather, it's an explanation of why Musk's firsthand experience with how aggressive censorship was used to prop up racism might lead him to prefer the kinds of policies he's now wanting Twitter to adopt. So the Times article also went looking for examples to demonstrate that Musk was himself a racist or a supporter of apartheid or problematic in some way. They came up completely empty-handed. So they spoke to his classmates at his high school in South Africa. A clear attempt to discover evidence he had said or done problematic things as a kid. You know, we know this. We've seen major newspapers do this to all sorts of people, even people who are far more insignificant than Elon Musk, far less significant. And, you know, trying to find out, well, what did he say? Was, you know, did he make a, a cruel remark as a kid? Well, they found nothing. They found nothing. Actually, quote, classmates at two high schools he attended described him as a loner with no close friends. None offered recollections of things he said or did that revealed his, that revealed his views on the politics of the time. But black schoolmates recall that he spent time with black friends. The Times interviewed Elon's father, Errol Musk, from whom uh, he's actually estranged. But Errol Musk said that his son objected, objected to the apartheid regime from a very early age. Quote, as far as being sheltered from it, that's nonsense. They were confronted by it every day, Errol recalled talking about uh, his kids, adding they didn't like it. Now, the Times did find evidence that Musk once chided a classmate for uttering a racial slur in reference to a black student. And Elon was bullied for doing so, according to the Times. Now, that classmate was sadly was later killed in a car accident, and Musk was, quote, one of only a handful of white people who attended the funeral in the family's rural village. It was unheard of during that time, said a source for The Times. So, like, this article, like, the whole framing of it is, you know, look at this very problematic upbringing Elon Musk had, and isn't this evidence of why the kinds of Free, you know, free speech environment he wants to bring to Twitter is dangerous on racist grounds. And that's, that's what the article wants you to come away with. But then the actual article itself establishes completely the opposite point, that Elon Musk was largely raised in an, in a, in an environment with censorship, that that censorship fueled racism, that he was keenly aware that it was racist from a very early age and, and was himself 
practicing non-racism and was was close with black people and and attended a black funeral when that was an unheard of thing for a white family to do. So like like it's an it's an amazing and they dressed it up as a hit piece, but it's the opposite of a hit piece. It made me like him more. So I I, I don't know what if, if you saw right. it, Kim, but it, this is just. Just incredible stuff, because when the New York Times wants to find something bad about you, you know, something you said when you were seven that you now regret, they find it. Right. The fact that they didn't find it is a is a pretty, pretty big win for Elon here. They found the exact opposite, right? Yeah. There's, oh, well, Elon actually had black friends and he actually attended a black funeral. And his dad was a part of the progressive party that was against uh, apartheid. So they're blaming Elon Musk for the sins of the entire government, right? They're saying, well, because you are from South Africa, because you're a white person from South Africa, you therefore bear the sins of everybody who made these decisions on your behalf as a South African. But that's actually kind of the attitude of the left, unfortunately, these days mm -hmm. of Democrats. You know, there we see this even in our own country right now, where it's, oh, you're a you are a, a white American. And so what does that mean? That means that you benefited from the ancestral slavery and racism in America, and you are responsible for it. So they go a step further. They say not only is the country flawed because the country was built and bred on racism and slavery and, uh, and, and, and segregation, but you are responsible for it because you were born somehow into this system. And so what the New York Times showcased was just that thinking, just being applied onto Elon Musk directly. I mean, it hasn't, I haven't seen it as much directed at an individual. I've seen it as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll say all people that benefited from this system of racism in the United States are privileged and now have to answer for it. But this was like a prime example of them putting it on a person and saying, well, because you're South African and you're a white person from South Africa, you are now obviously clearly must be a racist because your right. country was racist. So. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous thinking. It doesn't make sense. Obviously, it's not accurate. It's wrong, actually. It is actually racist in and of itself often. And yeah, I mean, this hit piece against Elon Musk, I didn't actually read the whole thing. You've just explained it and pointed out some of the excerpts from it. And yeah, it makes me like him even more. Clearly, the guy is absolutely not racist. And, and, and neither I remember was his dad. Right. And I remember when the when uh, progressives wanted you, liberals wanted you to check your privilege. Right. It's just supposed to be, well, you know, as a white person, you might have benefited historically from power and privilege. And you're supposed to be aware of that. And this is like a clear example. He is aware of that. It's clear right. from the article that he was from an early age aware that white people were treated differently and better and that that was unfair and he was opposed to it. He left the country so as not to be drafted in, into the army, which was going to which had racist um, the civil service having racist uh, policies against uh, the, the native uh, black South Africans. So like he, right, he was aware of this. So now it, it, that used to be what you were supposed to do. You know, be aware of it, work against it if you can. But now it's it's not even just be it's not be aware of it. it it's you, you can't do anything. You're you are you are fallen. You are yeah. sinful. It is it, it you it can't be helped. And it's just it's so, it's so dumb. One aspect of this um, that you mentioned was that he plans to fire a thousand mm -hmm. Twitter employees that he believes are. I have a little I have a problem with this. I mean, I get it. I do think that these big tech corporations are run by a bunch of people who are way too woke coming from areas like San Francisco like here in Los Angeles, you know, we've got Snapchat and Google and all that here. And a lot of, you know, I, I, I totally understand it. But do you have a bit of a problem with him 
Like, how is he going to do this? How is he going to go through and be like, are you woke? If you're woke, you're out of here. I mean, I feel like that's discriminatory. You can't really go and I mean, maybe you could say, okay, we're going to the only I think plausible way to get to do this without being discriminatory, I would say, is to move your headquarters. And if you move it out of San Francisco, you're going to get a lot of people that say, I don't want to move. And so I, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, does sh- that bother you? I mean, yeah, no, it, he definitely should not like go down the list and go, "Are you woke? You're fired." Like that would be that'd be pretty. I mean, that would not be. It would be very rich to do that and then claim you're supporting free speech, right? But then right. you're firing all right. your employees who disagree with you. Uh, what, what should happen is that you know people who are working against the company's interests from the inside, who are you know who are. Say, who are sabotaging or, 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 or who want, you know, if they, if they want aggressive, like, we want to moderate all of this disinformation and that's what we're going to do. Uh, so it's not ideological. It's just, it's okay. With the job of moderating disinformation is something we are rethinking. And so people who are part of the, uh, part of a company that tries to aggressively curate a, an only progressive view uh, will not have a place at the company anymore. That's how it should be done, yeah. not a, oh, you know, do you have woke views on race or gender? Okay, you're fired. Like, that would be, don't, don't do that. That would not be a free speech but thing. But then to do. again, that, that was the New York Times framing of what he plans to do, or was right. that coming, where was that coming from? That, that was, was their yeah, framing Yeah, that was the it? Times, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they're they're making it like, well, he's going to go and fire a bunch of people that doesn't ideologically agree with. Well, I am interested to see how a subscription model would to learn more about that, because I think most people would not pay for tweets. But if the idea is that like super users like like me and you would we, we have to pay and then maybe our content gets some kind of priority or is viewed more often or something. Uh, I, I, that, that sounds interesting to me, but obviously we, we have to learn more about it. I think people would pay for certain features. They would pay to edit, you know, to be able to have mm-hmm. a certain time frame to edit their tweet. Um, they would maybe pay, yeah, maybe to boost or something, you know, certain extra features. I mean, I pay for Twitter Blue right now. I was trying it out. It sucks. <laughs> I don't know the purpose of it at all. It's horrible. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe he does, some, you know, it's like two bucks a month or something like that. Maybe he'll end up changing it and making it uh, more user friendly. I mean, it does give me the option to edit my tweet. I suppose I get like, a couple of minutes, you know, mm-hmm. before it posts to go back. Are you on Twitter Blue? Are you a no, subscriber nope. of it yet? Nope. Oh, you're not. Well, try it out. I, it's terrible. It. I mean, it's pointless. I don't even know what the purpose of it people is. People should be able to, I but, think, uh, what if, but you can have Twitter Blue and not be verified. People should be able to pay to be verified if they're not verified. I think that would be a good idea. I think everybody should be allowed to be verified. If you want to prove right. that you're a real human being and you want to show your identification to Twitter, then you can get yourself the blue check to show that you are a real human being and that when you are interacting with someone, you're not a bot. You're not going to be called a bot. Um, But you also have the option to remain anonymous and not and and be called a bot by people. And and that would I think that would help having more uh, a larger proportion of the user base be verified. I mean, maybe there would probably be downsides. But one of the upsides is that I think those kinds of people, people who are verified and it's clear who they are, are probably less likely to engage in the very kind of nastiest sort of social right. behavior and that might totally. actually make twitter a healthier place but you you should be able to and, i think an anonymous speech can also serve a valuable social must be function. There, yeah. so yeah yeah right yeah. 
But yeah, but I do think that also one thing it would also do if they verified everybody who wants to be verified rather than like amplifying certain people like I have a blue check. Well, I'm not any better than anybody else. Why do I have a blue check? Why? Because mm -hmm. I because I'm on a show like to, it doesn't make my political opinion necessarily better than my neighbors. So I feel like, you know, if they were to also give everyone blue checks that wanted to be verified, it would also, I think, maybe tamp down on the, uh, I think the political rhetoric would also hopefully maybe calm mm -hmm. down a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, hope, maybe, we'll see. All right, well, coming up, Emily Jashinsky will join us to discuss the growing pro-abortion rights protests mounting across the nation, even outside the justices' homes. Stay tuned for that. Pro-choice activists protesting the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion on abortion staked outside the D.C. homes of conservative justices over the weekend. Their protests lasted into the night and were most intense outside the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. One activist told local news outlet WUSA 9, quote, you don't get to take away my bodily autonomy and get to enjoy your Saturday at home. You can do one or the other. Last week, GOP senators slammed Democratic leadership for, quote, enabling authoritarian tactics, calling out Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to make very clear to the American people that all threats and intimidation tactics against our Supreme Court justices are abhorrent. Fox News' Peter Ducey pressed White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on the personal targeting of Supreme Court justices. Let's wait for her response here. It's about moving forward. These activists posted a map with the home addresses of the Supreme Court justices. Is that the kind of thing this president wants to help your side make their point? Look, I think the president's view is that there's a lot of passion, a lot of fear, uh, a lot of uh, sadness from many, many people across this country about what they saw in that leaked document. Joining us now to weigh in is culture editor at The Federalist and Rising Fridays co-host, Emily Jashinsky. Emily, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, guys. What do you make... What do you make of this? I mean, I mean, this activism happening now outside of the Supreme Court. I know this is probably the Supreme Court justices are dreading this. They're saying, oh, my gosh, this is exactly why uh, this leaked document should have never happened, because now we're being pressured to change our opinions. What do you think of that? What do you make of that? Yeah, and it was a bad answer from Saki, so much so that she actually sent out a statement um, in the form of a tweet earlier saying, you know, violence or threats are, are not welcome. And it would have been easy enough to just say that the other day. I don't know why she didn't, but she at least walked it back. There was a... Uh, a piece in The New Yorker where she, they say a woman protesting the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last Tuesday said she hoped since the Supreme Court's opinion was still a draft that, quote, if we really scare the shit out of them, they'll change their minds. And so I, I do think that's like explicitly the strategy here. And the reason um, that I think that should concern people is because there's a reason the Supreme Court is not litigating these questions, that, that this still happens behind closed doors after the oral arguments. Um, and the reason that is because it's supposed to be, it's constitutionally set up to be um, a branch that is not subject to the whims of changing, shifting public opinion in the country. Um, and, and so if you think that's wrong, 
Sure, uh, that's one thing. But if you, you know, sort of are, are somebody who's complaining about democracy and, you know, the Constitution and norms, um, then this should be alarming. And I yeah. would be alarmed if this went in the other direction very much so. I mean, if this were conservatives showing up the, at the home of Sotomayor because something leaked in the... I would be very concerned about that. It's subconsciously going to be in the mind of every justice and clerk um, as they're deciding these things in the future. Uh, what's going to leak? What's going to put their family in... Uh, a, a difficult right. situation. So I think to that extent, um, if you are somebody who cares about norms in the Constitution sincerely, um, none of this is particularly good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, and, and okay, let's be, you know, let's be clear. I, people do have a right to gather in the, you know, the road, the sidewalk is a public space. So they can do this. They can't make threats because, you know, no one can make threats of, of actual violence. Uh, so it is permissible. I just think it's a bad idea. I think it erodes kind of the fabric of civil society, which is, which is exactly what the activists are trying to do. I mean, some of these quotes, one of the organizers at the Kavanaugh protest said, you know, we're, get, we're about to get doomsday, so I'm not going to be civil to that man at all. Um, it's very provocative, inflammatory language, you know, for the purpose of exactly, as you said, trying to, to intimidate. And, and the court and, and also, shouldn't the judiciary, or is it just a myth that they are outside the political process? I, you know, ideally, I think we're supposed to think of the Supreme Court and, and the, the judges as a little bit removed from the political process. So whereas, you know, it might be a different thing to, to protest a government official or a government spokesperson or an agent of the state, this, is, this isn't even that because these are the people who are supposed to be impartial and, and a, a little bit immunized from the political process. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there's sort of concerns on the right, if anything, that sort of Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett are the ones who, uh, if, if this is just a draft, they're the ones who might not sign on to the majority. And so it, it's almost an irony. But at the same time, you wonder if the folks on the left understand that, given the protests outside Justice Kavanaugh's house, um, because they are openly trying to scare the uh, S out of him. And this is where it's, where it's going to go from here. The, the letter that I reported out in The Federalist um, last week about that, that was sent by Blackburn, um, Cruz, and, and Mike Lee was interesting because they call it Chuck Schumer for not um, tamping down calls for the end to the filibuster and court packing. Um, and so on the, the one side, you have activists sort of gathering outside private homes and sharing the private addresses, which I think is particularly sort of a chilling thing to do. Um, but secondly, there's going to be this question about norms on the other side. And in that letter, the senator said that's what dictators do. They change the rules when they don't get their way. Uh, but you can see how this is really going to heat up um, because of that question in particular, like what, what norms um, are worth pres preserving when if you're on the left, this, this right to choose is on the line. Oh, the hypocrisy. <laughs> I mean, that's just what I think when I hear about this, because look, I mean, Chuck Schumer wanting to politicize the Supreme Court, getting the base galvanized to get them to want to vote for more Democrats in order to change the system, because look what happens if you don't. I mean, that is what conservatives have been doing for decades now, using the Supreme Court as the the reason to get out there and to vote for us, right? It's get out there and vote because we want to change the court system, not not make changes to the actual fundamental structure. I understand his criticism on the court packing issue or expanding the Supreme Court. I, I understand that. But it's still 
using the same sort of emotion out of the voter, right, saying, we've got to do something, you have to vote for us. And liberals haven't done that very well over the years, right? Liberals have not used the Supreme Court the way conservatives have, but now suddenly liberals are. Now suddenly it's an issue that Democrats care about and they're getting criticism for it. Yeah, it's a really so interesting question. Oh, no, I was going to say, it's a super interesting point, because a lot of people on the right don't think that that has been successful. They say, like, Roe has been upheld. Roe and Casey have been upheld by Republican-appointed justices for a really long time in different cases. Um, and so, the, well, like, antitrust law is a totally different question. There have been plenty of Republican-appointed justices right. who have been great on that issue. Um, on cultural issues, it's a different question. And the Supreme Court, to Robbie's point, used to be a very different institution, and, and it is just completely political uh, right now. And that's, I think, a lot of people would like to, you know, get away from that and, and you know, restore that sort of, uh, but it, actually Glenn Greenwald had a great post on his sub, sub stack last week where he was talking about how the, the judiciary in the Supreme Court is fundamentally anti-democratic. And so when people on the left are complaining that it's, it's anti-democratic, you have to have some awareness that it is intentionally, constitutionally anti-democratic. It is one of the mechanisms that the founders put in place um, to sort of deal with and, and temper when at times uh, they saw as excesses of sort of democratic rule. So it, it just, when we come to it with, with that understanding of what the Supreme Court is supposed to do, you just see how far away we've gotten from it. And neither side is satisfied, which I think is a really interesting point, Kim. Well, and, and, and to what you just said, you know, getting rid of Roe v. Wade and returning this issue to the states would be, a, you might disagree with it, but it is a, yeah. you can't disagree that it's the pro-democracy move is to let right. democratic uh, or democratically uh, elected uh, legislators in various states chart different cor the, the courses on abortion that align with the values of the citizens of that state. Maybe in some states that's very little access to abortion. In some states that's complete access to abortion. In some states maybe it's it's restrictions after a certain time period. And like why why is that, I guess why is that wrong to do from you know from the progressive standpoint where every democracy we want more democracy how dare the republicans erode our democracy okay here's more democracy people the the, the people and their representatives can decide for themselves in their various states and, and yet this is being this is this principles being attacked well yeah, because I think for people uh, Sorry, ahead, democracy just coming from the, the more the progressive side, but people like democracy. OK, I get your point. Sure, it is more democratic, I suppose, to allow states to vote on whether or not they want to have slaves, whether or not they want to continue that practice, whether or not they want to force people to do X, Y, Z thing. Sure, I guess it's democratic to allow that, but it's still antithetical to individual freedom. And I think that is where the stance comes from, is that it is the the crowd, the the mob mentality, the mob majority going and ripping away individual freedom from a person, that is the problem with it. And that is why, as Emily just mentioned, the Supreme Court is in place as an anti-democratic institution to counter when the people get that mob mentality and want to rip rights away from individuals. That is the point of the Supreme Court. So they're meant to protect the individual from this sort of authoritarian tyranny. And that, you know, and that's, that's all uh, that's all I want the left to admit that there are there's such a thing as individual rights and some things shouldn't be put to a vote. And it's not rah, rah democracy all the time. And if I could get that kind of uh, uh, admission from the left, I could go home happy. Well, and that's the point. And that's that's the, what I think the thing is, it, it, because Kim is right. And then at the same time, it's it's like 
these are people who are constantly crying about norms and democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who grew up, um, you know, after Roe was considered settled law, that was sort of the, the phrase that we heard over and over again, settled law, settled law, didn't realize how fragile Roe was. And Ryan and I talked about this on, on Friday. Um, I think Ryan disagreed with what I said, but Roe has always been very fragile, um, just so, sort of in terms of the legal uh, standing of the, the ruling. Like it was, it has always been questioned by liberals for from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Lawrence Tribe. Um, it found this right in the 14th Amendment, and it just didn't do a very sound job logically deriving it from that. So it's always actually been on shaky ground. And I think people didn't realize that. Um, and so I, I feel like since the opinion leaked last week, we've just seen that there's actually just not a whole lot of, um, I think, understanding of how the system of abortion in the country has worked over the last several decades, um, and, and sort of also at how it fits into the the system in general, like how the court's supposed to work, how the how federalism is supposed to work. And I'm glad, actually, if there's a silver lining, it's that we're having this nuanced sort of conversation right now. Um, but yes, the folks who are crying about democracy and norms mm -hmm. for forever, this this is how the republic system, the Republican system of government that we have is it's yeah. it is how it works. You toss these questions back to the states. But and Kim, the only the last thing I would say is that that's where this all comes down to is the question of whether we are talking about um, a, a fundamental freedom or a fundamental right to life. And settling that question um, is a really right. obviously a very difficult thing to do. I just, I don't right. want to hear my body, my choice anymore from the people who wanted to require vaccination, <laughs> who are masking toddlers, and it's, it's yes. that, that yeah. let that, let yeah. that one go. You lost that. So yeah. Emily, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks guys. And our rising panel will be with us next to discuss the Republicans counter to Democrats effort to protect Roe. Stick around for that. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters yesterday that it's possible the GOP will seek to legislate a national abortion ban, directly countering congressional Democrats' efforts to codify Roe v. Wade. McConnell, however, declined to definitively say whether the GOP plans to take such action should the party regain control of Congress in the fall. McConnell's comments are only the latest in a week of intense legislative mudslinging as both parties threaten to use Congress, state and local legislatures to codify abortion protections or restrictions. Just yesterday, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves told CNN that while Republicans in the Magnolia state have other priorities at the moment, they have not ruled out legislating bans against contraception like the morning after pill. Our rising panel joins us now to discuss. Julia Manchester is a political reporter for The Hill, and Sam Godaldig is a partner at the CGCN Group. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. So, Julia, what do you think about the politics of this, you know, Roe v. Wade battle right now? Because my understanding is that, you know, Democrats are on pretty solid ground with a substantial majority of voters wanting abortion to be legal in, in many cases, not all cases, but many cases. Um, but, you know, how does any kind of national ban or national protection for Roe v. Wade play into the upcoming election? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Robbie. We've seen poll after poll show that in you know many cases, the majority of voters are in favor of protecting Roe v. Wade. Now, abortion protections and views on that change once you start talking about later term abortions. However, there does seem to be a majority of voters that are in favor of some sort of protection for Roe v. Wade. In terms of how it influences uh, the midterms and voters politically, we really have yet to see that. We know that this galvanizes the conservative anti-abortion base as well as the liberal um, abortion rights bases. However, I think there's a big question mark around how this impacts independent or swing voters. I think you're seeing a lot of Democrats very much try to target a lot of suburban voters, in particular suburban female voters who may be also targeted by Republicans on the issue of inflation, for example. You know, but it's interesting, whenever I talk to Republicans about this issue, when I, when I say Republicans, I mean Republicans on the Hill and in the establishment, I don't hear a lot about abortion. It seems to be inflation, crime, and the border. That's something Republicans have been very successful and very good at being disciplined on. So I'm curious to see how they want to talk about this issue of abortion because it's such a sensitive issue, I would say, obviously, for both sides of the political spectrum. Well, Sam, so, you know, th- we'll throw this question to you then. How how much do you think Republican voters actually do care about the abortion debate? I mean, if Republicans, which likely will probably take over Congress in the fall, uh, you know, inflation is going to be a tough, uh, that's going to be a tough uh, issue to solve, no matter if you're on the Democrat or, or Republican side. That is something that maybe would be with us for a while because of past mistakes that have been made. Um, y- y- you know, there's a lot of pro- border, a lot of these things are difficult to solve. So do you think Republicans are going to hang their hat on this abortion issue and say, OK, we're going to go around and uh, we're going to try to ban contraception even the morning after pill, I mean, is this going to motivate voters? Well, yeah, it, it will motivate pro-life voters for sure. And, and they're a major kind of part of the Republican coalition that needs to be energized for Republicans to have a good election. So, uh, you know, it, like all these issues, different states um, have different levels of support, I suppose. So, you know, in, in some of the redder states like Mississippi, I think, you know, you'll see some some bills and legislation like you're seeing and uh, in the Northeast or the West, you, you might see kind of more toned down versions, but uh, Republicans have for 40 years been, you know, supportive of the pro-life movement, supportive of overturning Roe v. Wade and making it a state's rights issue. Um, and I think when they're in a position to, uh, you know, to, to talk with pro-life voters, they'll, they'll talk about this issue. I think generally, though, you know, heading into Election Day 2022, they'll focus on pocketbook issues and, and things that are more or maybe pressing to more Americans, you know, getting getting price of gas down, you know, but, securing the border, those sorts of issues. Although this is this is beyond just a state's rights issue. I mean, if they're talking about actually banning abortion, that is now that that's going a step further. I mean, that's that's not just, OK, well, each state make it make up your own mind. Well, I, I think, you know, what the leaked Supreme Court decision does is turns it over to the states. I mean, you're, you're talking about McConnell, I guess, passing a, a, a bill that would ban it nationally. That would need 60 votes. You know, he's in the minority right now. He could, he doesn't even have the ability to bring that that bill to the floor of the Senate. That would be Chuck Schumer's job. So uh, I, I don't see them having the votes to do that in the near future. 
And in the meantime, if, if this leaked decision is, is right, it, it basically becomes a state's rights issue. And um, I think you'll see blue states have it be legal and, and whatnot. And I think you'll see red states doing what you saw Mississippi do. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point in, in turning this issue back to the states. I mean, it is the case, you know, I, I just said a few minutes ago that most voters, from what I can tell, support abortion being legal in some cases. So, but that doesn't mean all cases. It, it looks to me like the most maximal kind of pro-choice um, attitudes, the attitudes of the kind of people you see, you know, like protesting outside Kavanaugh and Roberts' houses over the weekend that, you know, abortion should be legal, you know, pretty much right until the very end of pregnancy. That's actually not a popular view. The, the pro-life view that, you know, abortion should, the, the most maximal pro-life view that really abortion ought to never be uh, permissible or ought to be fine to, to ban it in nearly all circumstances, also probably not representative of most voters. But there is a probably large in-between uh, position, the position that other countries in Europe actually have as well, right, that abortion is, is absolutely allowed, but then restricted after 10 weeks or 15 weeks or something like that. Um, but, you know, Julia, do, do we hear, we don't really hear that being talked about as much because, you know, the, the two activist sides on this issue are, are, the, are the loudest voices and are driving policy because that's who the uh, or, or is that the case? I think they are driving policy because the political figures are responsive to them because they're so loud and so visible. Even neither actually represent a, a majority view. Yeah, they are driving policy to some extent. I would agree with that. But at the same time, I think leaders of both parties and the establishment and then the campaign organizations in both parties are very cognizant of the fact that right now, um, you know, even though there is definitely an argument to be made on both sides that this could be an economic health care issue and really go beyond the issue of, let's say, states' rights, both sides could argue that. But I think the establishment leaders on the Republican and Democratic uh, sides would argue that still the economy, for example, inflation is, um, you know, especially the Republicans would argue that that is a top priority right now. In terms of health care, we know that Democrats have been very, very successful in the past, especially in 2018, on campaigning on health care. I wouldn't be surprised if Democrats make a play in the party establishment to very much campaign on this issue as much as possible. Republicans, even though I think there is definitely a connection with that pro-life part of the party. They're obviously have a seat at that Republican Party table. I don't know how much of an emphasis they're going to put on that because we've just heard throughout this cycle, like I said before, it's inflation, crime, the border. That seems to be three, those seems to be three issues that pull very well uh, right. for Republicans. So I'm curious to see, you know, how this abortion issue impacts that, well, especially I, voters. Right. And I think those will continue to be the main uh, issues. Maybe if this was coming out uh, this stuff with abortion, Roe v. Wade, right before the election. I think it might have had uh, more of an effect. But, well, we got to leave it there. Sam, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. We'll have more Rising right after this. Gain-of-function research, a hotly debated type of research within the medical community in which scientists make viruses deadlier with the intent of preventing pandemics, is at the heart of the lab leak theory. Staff writer at Vox's Future Perfect, Kelsey Piper, does a deep dive on virus hunting and the debate surrounding it. 
She joins us now to expand on her reporting. Welcome. Hey. Uh, I read your story. I thought it was great. Uh, you know, tell us more about it, particularly. So it's not just, you know, the, the manipulation of uh, viruses, which I, I think now people are much more wary of, but even the act of seeking them out, uh, of trying to, you know, f discover these viruses you know, in the wild, in caves, in, in places where they are. You, there are aspects of the scientific community saying this is, you know, valuable, n necessary research. And you're, in your piece, you, you know, give voice to the other side of that, which is, well, are, isn't that maybe a really good way of spreading these viruses is going out and seeking them in the wild? Yeah. So gate of function research, I've opposed for a very long time. Like before the pandemic, I was writing, we should not be risking everybody's lives with this. Um, but I used to be much more in favor of the sort of viral discovery research. You go out into a cave, you sample bats, you try and find viruses. And recently, some researchers, especially you know, Kevin Esfeld at MIT, um, who is one of the pioneers of CRISPR, has been um, making the case that actually many of the concerns that we have about gain of function research, we should have also about trying to identify viruses with pandemic potential, because a lot of the problems here are if we have a virus that could kill millions of people if unleashed, are we taking adequate precautions against accidental use? Are we taking adequate precautions against military use by some nation that decides to build bioweapons? Are we taking adequate precautions against terrorist groups trying to build it themselves? And all of those questions you might ask about gain of function research, you should also ask about anything that's that deadly just because it's occurred in nature doesn't mean it's any more of a good idea to have on hand in our labs. It's kind of an interesting concept, right? To, I mean, I, I see your point now that you're bringing it up, and I hadn't really thought about it myself, about the virus hunting aspect. Of course, many of us are against the gain of function. We're kind of like, oh, okay, that's maybe not a good idea. But actually going and seeking in the wild these viruses, I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, they're going into places where humans would normally not go. Is that right? So it's it's their, their, these are, you know, bats and humans would not naturally be interacting in any way. There's a reason why the species are separated. One's nocturnal, one isn't. One's hiding in a cave, one isn't, right? And then when you go and put yourself, you insert yourself into a place where you don't belong, you might discover something that then unleashes onto humankind something very dangerous. Is that what you're kind of leading at with it? Why it's dangerous? Yeah. Exactly. There are some things maybe it's better to leave buried. And the researchers I talked to were much more supportive of work at the actual human wildlife interface, like sampling for viruses in human populations that are in frequent contact with animals, seeing if anything is crossed over. That's not the problem. The question is sort of, yeah, looking for trouble, going out to a cave that, you know, we could just leave alone, um, sampling for viruses that, you know, that maybe there's some small probability they would cross over into humans on their own. But we're raising that probability a lot if we handle the bats, uh, take a bunch of samples, take the samples back to a lab, infect other animals in order to test transmission and stuff like that, mm -hmm. publish sequences online, you know, all of those are decisions that should be made thoughtfully and have sort of been done by default. And it's kind of like, well, what's the upside of doing that, right? The, 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 the implicit kind of rationale here is, well, we need to do this in order to be prepared for the next pandemic, but of course doing that, so, but what, A, doing this raises the risk of a future pandemic, but then if the trade-off <laughs> is um, that we, that we, 
are, are better prepared, I guess you could make that case. But right, none of the, the vaccines we've developed, the therapeutics we've developed, these are not things that we're getting based on the research we've done on gain of function or, or hunting the virus. Like none of it has to do with that. So what, it, what was the benefit of this kind of research? It, it, you know, what, what, what do they claim? Yeah, so that is a question that a lot of people are sort of asking. All right, we knew that coronaviruses might be a problem. We went out and we sampled tons of coronaviruses. Uh, and then a coronavirus pandemic hit. Did all of that coronavirus research actually help us develop vaccines, develop therapeutics, develop tests, respond? Um, most of the people I talked to said, no, it didn't. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. So That's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, all, all of that work was not what helped us invent vaccines. There are some people who are like, well, you know, it helped a little bit. It helped us understand the fundamentals. You know, it's hard to say that any scientific research is is worthless. Um, but for the most part, like, no, we, we didn't use it to make the vaccines. We didn't use it to develop the therapeutics. Um, we used previous research on SARS, which is a coronavirus that had actually infected humans. But this cataloging work, not so much. And of course, there yeah, is isn't the that, interesting. that this cataloging work caused the pandemic. Right. So. <laughs> right. Even worse. Even worse. Right. It's like in, yeah, the positive, think... in the positive column, right, some scientists had some fun doing some research, yeah, and then right. maybe it caused all this de widespread death. It's, it's, it's wild. Right. It's wild. Interesting. Um, yeah. Do you, so, so is there a... Is there discussion in the scientific community about serious discussion about limiting these kinds of practices going forward? Because based on what I you hear a lot of um, a soft, I think, soft institutional defense of the idea that that science should have scientists should have a free hand to do this kind of thing if they think it's in the best interest that you know f kind of funding should continue government funding should continue i'm not seeing a lot of grappling with or reckoning with uh you know with 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 the serious concern a lot of people have that this just is not worth it yeah i think um you know, it's very much going to be specific to each agency and each situation, which is a little bit of a frustrating place mm -hmm. to be in. It would be cool mm -hmm. to see like a, a nationwide sort of public discussion over what standards the government should have for funding research and whether we're meeting them. But like, for example, Deep Vision, which is the viral sampling program, is USAID. Um, and I, NIH has whatever stance they have on gain of function. Um, USAID is sort of doing their own thing and having different conversations. So I think it's very much plausible for some of these agencies to redirect some of the money they're spending towards more valuable and less risky work. Um, and across the board, less likely. But, you know, eventually, I think people's questions are pretty legitimate and they're going to end up having to be answered. Hopefully wow. we get some of those answers <laughs> at some point, especially whether or not this virus hunting and experimenting with them in the lab is what actually caused this massive pandemic. That would be uh, an epic scandal, right? right? So that's why everybody's kind of shying away from it, saying, oh, it wasn't us, it wasn't us. This just came from a bat soup. Uh, is <laughs> but they so. don't, yeah. Kelsey, well, they, thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you so Go much ahead, for Robert. joining us. Thanks so much, absolutely. Have a great day. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. So last week, Senator Rand Paul challenged the DHS's new Ministry of Truth 
the Disinformation Governance Board. I can't believe we have one of these saying, quote, the Biden admin's dangerous ministry of truth must be stopped. I'm gathering signatures to put the Senate on record to eliminate their, quote, Disinformation Governance Board and defend the American people from this grotesque anti-free speech effort. This comes after Senator Paul went head to head with DHS Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas during a hearing last week where the senator blasted the U.S. government as the greatest propagator of disinformation of all time. Let's watch. I think you've got no idea what disinformation is, and I don't think the government's capable of it. Do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is? The U.S. government. Are you familiar with McNamara, the Pentagon Papers? Are you familiar with George W. Bush and the weapons of mass destruction? Are you familiar with Iran-Contra? I mean, think of all the debates and disputes we've had over the last 50 years in our country. We work them out by debating them. We don't work them out by the government being the arbiter. I don't want guardrails. I want you to have nothing to do with speech. You think we can't determine you know, speech by traffickers is disinformation. You think the American people are so stupid they need you to tell them what the truth is? You can't even admit what the truth is with the Steele dossier. I don't trust government to figure out what the truth is. Same. Government is largely disseminating disinformation. <laughs> I don't think the U.S. I mean, government is the, is the... I don't think the U.S. government is the absolute yeah, right. greatest disseminator of dis. I mean, like we were saying in an earlier segment, in North Korea, right, is a is a is a larger disseminator of disinformation than the U.S. government. But but the U.S. government is certainly certainly guilty of lots of misinformation relating to. I mean, you know, how many times have we highlighted it? The pandemic and other subjects, and so it's totally appropriate to ask why on earth we could trust a DHS board to adjudicate these issues fairly when the person they put in charge of this board, this board has given no indication whatsoever that she possesses that objectivity or that she has avoided the pitfalls that ensnared so many other kind of mainstream media or progressive commentators with respect to the lab leak, with respect to Hunter Biden and Russia in general, other subjects. She is, she is one of those easily duped kind of, you know, disinfo experts who end up doing the very thing they're accusing everyone else of doing. Well, I don't know if they could pick anyone to do this job objectively. Yeah. I mean, any person is going to have some sort of bias or they're going to have their own filter that they, you know, it definitely shouldn't even be one individual if they're going to have something like this at all, but they shouldn't even have something like this at all. But I will say, even though I agree with you that the United States is not the most untruthful country or government in the world. I'm sure that there are other governments, as you mentioned, maybe North Korea or others that definitely lie more than the United States. But where I will agree with Rand Paul is that the United States is the largest, I would see the most, the most effective or the loudest or the most powerful um, disseminator of, inf of information. So I, I think that's so that, you know, the United States controls a lot of the West, for example, a lot of the information that gets put out there by the West. A lot of that is then echoed by other countries because they're feeling pressured by the United States to go along with it. You know, when there's like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, how many other countries were like, well, OK, I guess we got to go along with this, I suppose, kind of. I don't know. You know, so I think that is where the U.S. is extremely powerful. More, I mean, North Korea, what kind of power do they have? So they might lie about everything, but who cares, right? Everybody, no, no one in the world's really listening to them. The United States, on the other hand, a lot of people listen to us. So when we're out there saying this is true, this is false, 
the power that the United States has around the world causes a ripple effect in other countries' leaders and governments then say, okay, yeah, this is true and this is false. So I do think he's right about that. Um, but, you know, good for, you know, leave it up to Rand Paul to actually challenge this type of stuff that's going on. And it's surprising to me that so many more aren't joining. And I mean, are you seeing from the Republican side? I, I Obviously, Democrats aren't. They're kind of championing this. But are there others? I mean, Rand Paul's always kind of like the lone, you know, libertarian sticking out like a sore thumb in the Republican Party, uh, giving them a lot of grief. But with this, it feels like everybody should be on board, not just Rand Paul. But what's going on over there? Well, I, I mean, I think they are. But I, I've noticed, and I, I think I've mentioned it on the show a couple times now, there's a kind of um, performative quality to Republicans these days where, like, all they care about is the on-camera commentary, and they're not really doing anything about the things they're complaining about. There's a, you know, we were discussing, you know, that um, the, 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 the thing that Elon Musk shared, how the, how the Democrats have gotten moved more to the left, actually, than Republicans have moved to the right, which I, I think yeah. is true in, in, a, in a lot of ways. But the incomplete picture of it is that the Republican Party has not, has gotten more performant. It's more of a circus, I guess. It's more of a, it's more of a, it's more entertainment. It's been more captured by entertainment. So there's a lot of railing against things they don't like in society without any plan to actually do it. Does that mean it's perform? Whereas D Democrats and left are doing things, right? They, they're they're protesting outside justices' houses. They are they are yeah. doing things. The the right is talking about it. The right is putting on a show for you, and I think that's the main difference. Yeah, I mean the left is actually creating this ministry of truth. Yeah. Which, you know, and, and are we even clear yet what they're going to do? Like, what is this ministry supposed to do? How are they supposed to police this disinformation? So and that's what I would like to know. I would like to see some transparency. I mean, we've been talking about this woman, the fact that this governance board is just uh, shocking and appalling that in modern America in 2022, we'd be doing something that's so 1984. But, you know, what I would like to know what she's actually doing. What is this board doing? Who, who are they identifying as disinformation? Then what do they do about it once they identify it? Do right. they just put a warning label on it? I mean, we're already seeing that with social media, so they don't need this governance board to put warning labels on tweets and Facebook posts. What so if what their are they job doing? was to fact check Jen Psaki or Mayorkas himself or, you know, people who say, who make uh, go the government agents who make, uh, who make false claims? Of course, we don't need a government agency to do that. That's ideally what an independent you know, press is for, maybe they don't do that effectively. So I guess it's our job, it's your job and mine um, to do it, to do that kind of thing. But, you know, maybe when, when, for instance, Biden claims that, well, 50, you know, former intelligence officials said this was Russian uh, disinfo, this Hunter Biden story, then this board would, in, in an ideal world, would say, well, actually, you know, that's not, this is, it's not a fake story. It's a low chance that there's actually not a laptop or the Russians planted it. Like, that doesn't make actually any sense. But we don't really need a government agency to do that. And where's the authority? Someone like Rand Paul, certainly his father, Ron Paul, would have always said this, uh, who's a, a, also a revered kind of libertarian figure, would say, well, where's the authority in the Constitution for the government to do this function? Does the Constitution, where in the Constitution does it say the, gov the federal government will set up a disinformation board to check whether things are true or false? Like, it doesn't. So they shouldn't. I'm pretty do that. sure it says the opposite of that, <laughs> right? I mean, right. the First Amendment kind of protects the ability for a person to to lie, to say to say whatever they want. 
uh, and not have government intrusion in that speech. And yet here we are with this government intrusion. But again, I would like to know what the government intrusion actually is. So I know they've created this board. I know they're going to be targeting. But what are they then going to do once they target? And who are they targeting? How are they targeting? What is the consequence of being targeted? I would like to know all of that. And I don't feel like we're being given any of this information you know, and instead, we're maybe they're giving us disinformation about what they're planning on doing as the yeah. disinformation well, governance board. Right, Mayorkas after right after admitting that he, they did a they did a bad job spreading information, giving out information about what the misinformation board is going to do. You know, has tried to characterize it as a very limited thing that it's not going to have policing power. It's simply going to advise the Department of Homeland Security on misinformation concerns oh. that they do have. So so they're not going, so they're a narc. So they're not going right. to have the policing power themselves, but they're just going to narc right. on you or probably me to the police. Uh, and then they're going to do right. something about right. it. So that's, right. oh, I see. Pro, well, right. even, yeah. Pro Putin or Putin apologist YouTube hosts are <laughs> fostering disinformation. Right. It's a, it's a, it's uh, right now. It's just a mainstream. It's just a Daily Beast headline, and soon it'll be a, a government uh, government uh, yeah, report well, I, as well. Yeah. It is what it is. Uh, I'll it look forward it to is. it. So. But like you, like you said, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting uh, religion, uh, free speech, right to petition, etc. And the Supreme Court has said the Congress shall make no law. We also interpret that to mean. Every aspect of the federal government also actually applies uh, to states government, uh, state governments too, because of, of the, uh, the, the the later uh, Bill of Rights entries that that make it that apply all of those rights to the states as well. So very clear, cannot cannot do censorship, um, but uh, our government still keeps trying. So we shall see. Indeed, we'll have more rising right after this. Well, the Washington Post reported that the Biden administration is warning the U that the U.S. could see an uptick in COVID cases this fall and winter, with projections showing 100 million COVID cases and a potential wave of deaths, citing the new Omicron subvariants. According to the Post, the projection is part of a bigger push to persuade lawmakers to pass nearly $23 billion in emergency aid for purchasing new vaccines, tests, and therapeutics. But the GOP is insisting on a $10 billion price tag. According to the New York Times, administration officials have met with two Republican senators as Democrats contemplate wrapping COVID into another emergency package for Ukraine. If Congress does not approve more money, the administration would use funds designated for testing and therapeutics to develop a bare-bones vaccination program to cover older Americans and the immunocompromised. However, this leaves out funding for boosters for the general public. Um, interesting. It is interesting. Uh, well, it's definitely coming back. I mean, I don't think anybody was, I mean, there, of course, people have been hoping that the pandemic would end, that COVID would go away, that we'd get zero COVID. That is not realistic. It's still with us. I, I, I'm in quarantine right now because I have a family member here who has COVID that I've been caretaking for. So, you know, Ryan, as we know, has been out with COVID for the last couple of weeks. It's still here. It's not going anywhere. Of course, it's going to get worse in the fall. It always does. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, what are they going to do about it? And are we going to go back into lockdowns, masks? Is this, are, you know, are we in this circle, this circus? For how long are we in this circus? And what are we going to do about it? Right. Well, and so are we going to spend ton, billions and billions and billions of dollars? I mean, Americans are very concerned about inflation right now because it's a huge problem. And look, you can argue that the inflation, the inflation we're facing is not 
you know, you can make arguments, and Ryan, for instance, makes arguments that it's not primarily a result of, of the government spending. But I, I think you, you'd have a hard time convincing me, and I think you'd have a hard time convincing the American people that billions and billions and billions more spending on this kind of stuff wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't run the risk of making the inflation problem even worse. And that's the right. thing people are most, most worried about right now. Most worried about, not COVID, because look, you can, you can protect yourself if you're worried about that. You have the, the capability to do that. For the overwhelming majority of people it is who, who have taken, who've gotten vaccinated or are not at significant health risk, it, it, is, it, is, it is a mild disease getting milder with each new uh, variant so far. So p- people's economic concerns, I, I think, are, are, are way higher justifiably than their concerns about the virus at this point. Yeah, they do need to do. I mean, they they uh, the other thing that I think is really bothersome about this is that they don't seem to be working on anything new. You know, we're not getting new vaccines approved here in the United States, for example, that maybe would be more effective or at least improving the current ones that we have. As we know, they're not stopping the spread. They're not sterilizing. Um, they, they wear off within five months. There's, you know, there's questions. We don't know what happens after the third dose wears off. If you get a fourth dose, what happens after that wears off? We don't have any data on that, mm-hmm. but they're not actually. And then the therapeutics, you know, there's a therapeutic issue with the Paxlovid. Uh, there's what people are talking about, COVID rebounding. If you've been reading about that in the news after people who've taken Paxlovid, they seem to not have the virus once they take the therapeutic. And then suddenly they've got the virus again. And that is a, a big point of, of discussion. And they're kind of researching that to figure out why that is. But, you know, we're, it seems like if we're going to be spending all of this money, um, the first place to put it would be testing, right? So that people know when to stay home and not spread it to other people. Uh, maybe onto N95 masks so that when people are sick, they can, you know, or they can protect themselves. But we've been really slow at that during this entire pandemic, not really getting that out there. I don't, I still don't even know if we really fully have that. I mean, I've been paying for tests because, like I said, I'm here in quarantine because COVID. And uh, I, I don't have it, but uh, my partner does. And we've been I've been buying tests every day, <laughs> you know, trying to, you know, testing him, testing me um, just to see. And, you know, we're just not seeming to make progress on that on that front. You know, they're still they, they don't cost as much as they did, but they still cost money. So, you know, I do think there's still a big subset of Americans that are very worried. I do. I worry personally about older Americans still. Um, you know, the vac- the vaccination wears off. So what do I do with my 95-year-old grandmother who was vaccinated and boosted five months ago, now knowing that, you know, is, that she's still likely to get COVID and likely to have a bad outcome, as we know now, age is the biggest risk factor. So I don't know, you know, this is, a, it's a tough situation. I do think the government still needs to do something, especially for older Americans. But at the same time, like you're mentioning, inflation, and then on top of it, we're adding it into Ukraine. Right. So, you know, well, older where Americans, I mean, people in their 90s, I mean, what's the they should get or, right. We need I think we do need to update our vaccines for them. And, you know, what's the they should get a booster shot every <laughs> once a year, at least. Right. I mean, at well, that age, what's every the, five months. Right. So you know, give, just keep giving time. it to them, whatever. The, well, but we don't know. We don't know what it does. So they're, they're, they still don't really well, know. Right, but, what it does, you know, there's worries that it might that it might weaken the immune system once it wears off, and that it makes you more susceptible to catching the virus. That's something the Israelis brought up when their government was authorizing the fourth dose of the bo- of the booster for their population. Some of the scientists were saying, you know, there's some early evidence 
that when the vaccine wears off, you may be even more likely to catch COVID than you were previously. That data does seem to be supported now by some data coming out by Walgreens. They've been, they're, they're very transparent with really great data coming out from Walgreens. There's maybe some early evidence of it. Again, nothing verified, but it's still concerning, right? Because we don't know. We didn't go through all the testing to find out if you inject grandma five, six, seven, ten 10 times, 14 times, like what happens? Right. We don't really know. But I'm right? saying so we do know, but right. No, it's true. It's but it's just with people of that age group, we really we we do know what happens right, right, if they if right. they don't have the vaccine at all, right? Then they have a very large chance of a of a bad outcome or death, uh, because if for that age cohort, that you know the, the the disease is just so deadly. For so that well, we need better. Th- yeah. We need to be looking at the therapeutics even more so then, you know, in that the, the, case, if we're yeah. not going to stop this. Right? No, we're not. And that's what we're not. And we're not going to test and mask our way out of preventing old people from getting. It's just it's not. It's too contagious. It's too contagious. It's too, when, the, you know, when the disease rolls through, when it's it's seasonal, it's you know, there's flare ups, there are waves, right. that stuff, it can lessen your chances of getting it. But so many people now, how many people have we heard say, oh, I've done everything right. How is this possible? Yeah. It's because it's not it's not right. avoidable. It, you can right. increase your chances of avoiding it. But you like that is it's not no guarantee. It's only a little uh, the little benefit you're getting. Your people are going to continue to get it at every age level. And we need right. to make sure the oldest people have the right therapeutics. And let's really figure out what is the right boosting regimen, because they're going to get we, you cannot mm-hmm. pretend you can't. We can't lock down our way out of it. We can't mask our way out of it. We can't test our way out of it. It's just going to happen for the foreseeable future. And my partner is fully vaccinated, you know, fully vaccinated and down and out with COVID right now with fever, you know, and uh, all that. So, I mean, it it is difficult. How's he feeling? How's he doing? Uh, He's had a fever. So it's about 100 degrees this, you know, for the last few days, chills, sweats, right? Just like feeling... Yeah, down and out, but, you know, not like bedridden totally, still walking around breathing all over me. <laughs> and is this, breath. if you don't mind me, is this his first bout with COVID or what he thinks is his first bout? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So hopefully I don't, you know, I had it, but I had it two year, over two years ago now. So I'm kind of like, do, how, how long? Yeah, what's my natural? But, I, you know, I also took care of my dad who had COVID back in January and he was he was in bed for days and I was right in his face caretaking for him and I didn't catch it. Uh, he had the Delta variant, but this one, you know, so I'm just kind of wondering, like, how long does my natural immunity last? Like, I don't know. You know, I had it back in uh, March, February, March of 2020. I caught it really, really early on because I was traveling a ton, especially throughout the West Coast, Washington and, uh, you know, areas where there was a lot of COVID spread really early on. Um, but and I didn't really get sick. Luckily, when I had it, I had it for you know, I, I had like one night where I was like having a tough time breathing. I just got really fatigued, extremely fatigued, but otherwise not sick. Um, it, it did give me like a flare up, you know, like they say that sometimes when you catch COVID, it might flare up your immune system and something that you have mm-hmm. already might come out. Like I have eczema and so it like flared it out really bad. So that was like the worst of it for me. But yeah, you know, he's He's down and out. But I, but every day I'm like, I feel sick. I don't know. Maybe I got it. You know, like, oh. and then I test and I'm like, no, and I don't have a fever. So it's just like, 
I'm just having sympathy illness, right? Like, yeah. Well, we just we got to get you both healthy uh, before the wedding, right? <laughs> well, that's I'm glad glad it's getting over with now. You know, right? Now's the right time. Month. You've got plenty of right. time. Yeah. Right. So I'm actually trying to get near him. Like, give that to me. Give me right. some COVID. Even if if you get it get right it. now, you'll you'll be better. And yeah. yeah that's that what I. Sense. Yeah. So I'm like literally like going right up next to him, sitting next to him. He's like, "Why are you sitting next to me?" I'm like, "I'm trying to catch some COVID. <laughs> I want this over with now. If I'm gonna get it, let's get it over with today. Now. I've heard that the immunity oh. lasts two years." I'm at the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I do think we want to play this funny clip real quick for you. This was just Trump announcing the Johnson and Johnson guy at this. Was this the owner and the heir of Johnson and Johnson? And this, I think, is just like a funny clip of Republicans. The the shift in mentality that we've seen with the base, but clearly not with Trump. So check this out. Uh, with him, you know. What a job he did. Also with us are some friends of mine. They wanted to say, I said, don't come tonight. Let's go another time. It's pouring. Woody Johnson, a great gentleman. You ever hear of Johnson & Johnson? He owns the place, I tell you what. This guy's got cash like nobody's got cash. <laughs> yeah. Boo, they don't care. They, yeah, and you know, it shows a little bit of Trump out of touch somewhat totally. with the base. Yeah. He's kind of out of touch with the base on uh, some aspects of COVID stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it makes you wonder how that would, you know, as as the odds of Republicans, whoever whoever the Republican is, just winning no matter what, kind of go up and up. It, it's, it makes me wonder what would a what would a head on Trump versus DeSantis battle look like? I, don't I think know. you're right. I, I think you're, I think he rode a populist wave to the White House that he doesn't fully understand. And this is one of those showcasings of him not understanding it. Right. He goes, oh, yeah. and this, by the way, that Johnson and Johnson guy's worth five point seven billion dollars. That's why the crowd is not cheering. They're like, uh. <laughs> but imagine if he brought up the Pfizer guy, it would have been I mean, people would have like <laughs> they would have lost their minds, I think. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis will join us to discuss the latest on the war in Ukraine. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, guys, we will see you later. Thank you so much for joining us. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.